Welcome to the Holistic Wealth Podcast. I'm your host, Keisha Blair, wife, mother of three, author of Holistic Wealth, and founder of the Institute on Holistic Wealth. The show will showcase various experts in the key pillars of holistic wealth. Each week, we deliver the best information on how to become holistically wealthy and live your best life. Today, we have a very, very special guest with us. We have Leslie Ford, and Leslie is the founder of Mom's Hierarchy of Needs, and that's a blog that Leslie has been working on for years, and she also just founded a new initiative called Allies at Work. Leslie, welcome to the show. It's amazing having you here. Thank you. I am delighted to be here and to speak with you again, Keisha. Yeah, no, it's amazing having you. And there's so many insights. I know that you've gathered from your parents survey during the pandemic. I mean, you've done amazing work with it. It's been featured on CNN and, you know, so many people are interested in that type of research because as moms, it's just been really difficult with homeschooling and work and everything during the pandemic. So Leslie, can you share a bit about why you started that initiative and kind of where it's headed and some of the insights from the survey? Absolutely. Well, you know, so I've been studying kind of the intersection between stress, self-care and growth for mothers initially for you know, the past five and a half years. So when the pandemic started, it was interesting. I had planned on doing an entirely different study and I usually will pick a topic or two, you know, every year to kind of dive into. But once this began, and of course I had no idea how long it would last. I was just really curious, you know, how was that affecting work? How was that affecting life? How is it affecting self-esteem how we feel about ourselves as parents, how we feel about ourselves as workers, how we feel about the relationships with our kids. And also, you know, out of the practical nature of how the pandemic has affected things, you know, how it impacted people making space for themselves and managing self-care in the context of a crisis. So initially I thought I would be studying it for maybe a month, maybe two months. I never imagined that it would be going on for as long as it has. And what it's really allowed me to do by launching that in March of 2020 and having it kind of run through today is just to really see how things have evolved and changed versus what stayed the same. In terms of your question about insights, people lean really heavily into their parenting role at the beginning of the pandemic. They dropped everything, as you can imagine, right? To make space for homeschool, navigating their children's emotional needs, mental well-being, physical safety. And most parents felt pretty confident as parents in the first wave of our study. It was kind of like, oh, you know, uh, more than half felt like they were doing as well, if not better than usual as parents because of the increased amount of time that they were spending with their kids and the increased amount of attention they were giving to their children's needs. Interestingly, as time wore on by the winter, it was really quite different. Most parents felt that they were not doing as well as usual as parents because after seeing many children face challenges to their mental health and emotional well-being, that had been a sub-theme pretty early on in the study that continued to increase and kind of reach a, like a dull roar by the fall and the winter that kids were not doing well mentally, in addition to all the challenges that were kind of happening within the family or with their education. And for people who had children in school, you know, school-aged kids, they're also getting, you know, report cards and getting measures of how children's grades were and hearing from their teachers. So they felt less confident as parents as they could see the outcomes in their children not being the desired outcomes. And so that has been a really interesting transition. And now that many communities, at least here in the U.S., are beginning to reopen, I'm in what is the sixth wave of the study. So every three months or so, there are a few different questions. I'll be navigating, you know, how this change, more kids 
have been able to be an on-site school this spring and into the beginning of the summer, more kids are able to re-engage in activities. And so more parents are also getting some of that work-life separation back that, you know, they were kind of hungry for, for months. And in theory, I haven't seen it yet, but in theory, more parents should be able to make space for their own self-care and well-being, something that pretty much, it was pretty early on in the study. And by the last wave, 80% of parents had decided that they were doing terribly or not as well as usual at caring for themselves. So leaning into the parenting role came first, then stabilizing and improving their situation at work, whatever their professional role was, you know, because work is tied to financial stability, it's tied, tied to healthcare, and it's tied to identity. People kind of put their energy there next after focusing on their kids. There was never any room left over for caring for their own health. So that's been, I think, the alarming and unfortunate consistent statistics since I've been studying this, that self-care has kind of gone out the window for most parents. No, I, I can definitely see that for sure, Leslie. And you raised a point about kids, you know, in terms of their readjustment back to the world of socializing, for lack of a better term. But I remember carrying my kids just last week to drop off their textbooks at school. You know, it was just supposed to be a quick drop off and, you know, because we still had our lockdown going in Canada here and, you know, the kids saw their best friends and while way back before COVID, they'd bolt towards each other with big hugs and smiles and laughs. It was just a simple hi, you know, and from afar. And what we realized as parents, I, you know, got to chatting with some of the parents is that the kids kind of lost that. They lost that tendency to readily socialize, you know, just on a whim. And so with the online learning, I mean, my kids have been doing it for a while too. I see how that's something that you'd want to track and that makes perfect sense. And so my next question, because this is, you know, we've seen it in the news reports, we've seen with some people, you know, hesitant to go back is because we're still in the midst of it. There are new variants popping up. People are probably more afraid of sitting in cubicle land. I'm just wondering about your take on people transitioning back and parents transitioning back and even moms, because I can see how some people would be would be anxious, you know, about going back into the workplace. And for many of our offices, we had transitioned to Workplace 2.0. You know, so it's it's this workplace setting where you're basically in an open space like a call center, you know, and, you know, not mainly offices, but open cubicles with no walls. And so I think it's going to take some reimagining of what the ideal workplace looks like now, because I know there's some people who are like, yeah, you know what? I'd actually prefer to work from home because I just feel safer. The kids haven't been vaccinated yet. Like, for instance, I have a nine year old. I don't know when she will be vaccinated. I'm sure there are many mothers and fathers in the same situation wondering, you know, and, and for people with underlying health conditions. So just wanted to get your take on that. Sure. Well, I'll tell you, well, let me start with in my study, no one wants to go back to the office full time. Um, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's that's good to know. I'm not I'm not alone. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No one. And and I'll caveat that if they are in a role where they have the ability to work remotely at least part of the time, no one wants to go back full time. There are some people throughout the study who are in essential roles. Like there's a number of people in the study who are doctors or work in the medical field, teachers, people who work in government, in certain fields where the nature of the work that they were doing really required them to spend some amount of time on site. But even that can be challenged, right? Like there are roles that organizations have thought of traditionally as needing to be on site that, you know, if you reimagine the role and you reimagine how that work gets done, may not need to be fully on site. I mean, I can't think of 
how many virtual doctor's visits, right, we've attended in the past year plus. Right. I even had an eye exam for wow. my daughter that was on that was on Zoom, right? It's, it's like, hey, put the computer six feet away and have her look at this. So, you know, there's so many roles where the assumption was that it had to happen in person that especially in the medical field and especially when you look at the world of education, that has been challenged. So what I have seen that work didn't work. I mean, I've been studying stress, self-care and growth, right? Overwhelmingly for mothers, but even for dads, right? In the past five plus years, work wasn't working for parents before. People did not have space in their schedules. People did not have healthy, balanced lives where they felt like they could allocate sufficient time and energy to themselves to their roles as parents and to their roles as workers. It's always been this high conflict area. So removing the commute, removing physically be in a place and taking that out of the picture creates more space for people. So what I've seen in the study is that parents are enjoying being able to take a walk in the middle of the day or being able to throw in a load of laundry in the middle of the day. There's also Frankly, I think a lot of, particularly for mothers, but I think this is true for a lot of parents, there's always been guilt associated with being in the workforce because so much of the society's message that we receive is you should be in service to your family at all times. And you know, we internalize that. So even if we can't fully pay attention to our children in the way that we want to when we're working from home, because our attention is divided between the work we're doing, caring for kids, perhaps, you know, caring for others. There are also quite a few people in the study who have responsibilities for aging parents or other loved ones, or might be caring for a partner or a spouse who is ill or has been affected by COVID. So all of those right permutations exist. Even if you can't give your children your full attention, seeing them, being in the same space that they're in, having them kind of be within arm's reach or within your home creates a certain amount of comfort. So many parents do not want to give up the flexibility of that, the ability to make their work and their home lives fit together more easily the ability to navigate things without having to deal with that commute. And I also think that, frankly, for a lot of women in particular, FaceTime and this artificial expectation that to show commitment to your job, you had to physically show your face in the office or you had to be at every event, that tended to disproportionately hurt women in the workplace. So when everybody in an organization was forced to work remotely. It started to create some equity around this issue of FaceTime that people weren't experiencing before. Absolutely. And, you know, as you're talking, Leslie, like everything resonates with me so highly because I remember after my husband died, my three-year-old was to start kindergarten in the September and he died in the spring. And I remember all of those tensions that you're speaking about. Mark, you, I was on leave at that point because I would have been on mat leave. But one of the reasons why I ended up even writing Holistic Wealth was because of that lens of women in the workplace and how a setback can really set us back. You know, and I talk a lot about that in the book as well. Because I found as a new single mom, because I, you know, I found myself single with two kids and having to navigate this career. And, you know, when it happened to me, that setback, the timing was off. I was chosen for an executive program, as I said in the book, and I had to take the time off because, as you mentioned, the expectation of being there, doing overtime, managing large groups of people and delivering on on these high stress projects. I really, really struggled with that. And it's one of the key themes in holistic wealth where, you know, I talk about the triple helix for women and talking to you now about the struggles that women face. And you're absolutely right that this has leveled the playing field in a way that I think if it wasn't for COVID, 
nothing else would have been able to do it in quite the transformational way that it has. And then now that we're thinking about going back, I'm just wondering, and I know this is part of your work with allies at work, what your recommendations are, because I'm sure for many moms, like I have a commute that's Mm -hmm. two hours per day. So one hour to go, one hour to come back. And I have three kids. I mean, it's daunting just (laughs) thinking about going back to that routine where you have no time, you're spinning your wheels, you're in a fog, there's just no time to even think. I mean, how can that be your ideal? And, you know, it's so funny after the book was published, I thought, wow, if I was to ever narrow this down for holistic wealth for parents, these are the the exact themes and the exact things that I'd want to discuss because I know from having that setback and so many people have had that type of setback now for COVID where you've had a spouse die or you've had a, a parent die or you've had, you know, someone close to you die or you've gotten very sick yourself. And so I know many people are facing the same decisions I faced back then too. When I thought about going back to work, 40% of workers don't want to go back to work. They're calling it the great wave of resignations coming because people have gotten comfortable with this more this more flexible lifestyle and so like i'd love to hear from you like what your thoughts are sure oh i have so much to say about this you know i think in addition to the fact that work wasn't working for a lot of people and you know mothers certainly are near and dear to my heart because i am one and certainly that's the audience that i've spent the most time studying even if you look at people who have different physical abilities, different mental abilities, learning styles, right? Like the traditional way work has rewarded people and the traditional way that people have succeeded is left a large part of the population out, right? It's a small kind of narrow group, homogenous group of people who've succeeded with traditional work. So I think that is Something that I share with employers as well, that if they are truly committed to walking the talk of diversity and inclusion, then flexibility needs to be part of how they think about getting the work done, because not everybody can manage to come to work in the same way, during the same hours, to the same physical place. It really limits the kind of workforce that you can have. And flexibility benefits everybody. It certainly benefits mothers and people who have caregiving responsibilities, which is not just mothers, right? Again, that's fathers. Increasingly, men want to be hands-on parts of their children's lives, hands-on active uh, contributors to their homes. And traditional work hasn't allowed for that, I think, for engaged dads either. So the attitude about what rules work can set in terms of how we live our lives are changing. People are not willing to accept the same restrictions they once were. And part of it is because, of course, after the past year plus of being faced with mortality on a daily basis and having these very large weighty life or death decisions kind of brought into daily life in a way that was not true for many people before the pandemic, that certainly forces you to change your priorities and to look at what you value and what's important in a new way. But I'll also say that work hasn't been a good deal for workers for many, many years, right? Real wages have been declining for years. Hours have been increasing for years. The flexibility existed on the side of the employer, not on the side of the worker for years and years. So people were already starting to kind of vote with their feet and vote with where they go and how they spend their time. There's been a huge rise in the gig economy, in people embracing non-traditional roles where they could have more autonomy and control over their time, even if it meant that they had to trade off some financial security in the terms of compensation or benefits. So I think these trends precede the pandemic and the pandemic has only inflamed, right, this tension between what workers need to live happy, productive, healthy lives and what employers need to 
deliver products and deliver services and to deliver profits. So it's been like this, you know, burgeoning, I think, boiling uh, cauldron for a lot of years. On the employer side, you know, I've also advised in addition to flexibility that the new workplace and what people need to survive and to succeed is greater support for their caregiving responsibilities. So if people are parents, then make it easy. <laughs> Help subsidize childcare, at least here in the United States, where the cost of childcare costs more than mortgages in most U.S. cities. And there's very little infrastructure support for early childhood education or childcare. So increase support for that as an employer. Increase support for elder care as an employer. You know, there are countless people who identify as caregivers, even if they don't have care responsibilities for children. So making this kind of the human condition, um, which is either being cared for or caring for others, right? It's part of the human condition, reflecting that in the way the workplace is structured, in the way benefits are structured. Supporting mental health care is kind of the third pillar that I spend time with employers on. People are predating the pandemic. There were epic levels of anxiety and depression and mental health needs have been on the rise steadily for years, right? In part because people are trying to manage schedules, commitments, and a way of living that is unsustainable, which leads back to the work norms in many cases and what is expected of people at work and what is expected for people to be able to make a living. So for all of those reasons, I think employers have the opportunity to create workplaces that are more transparent, to create workplaces that are more flexible, and to create workplaces that support people through these different stages of their yes, lives. Yes, absolutely. And that's so critical because as you're speaking, I'm sure everyone who's a parent can identify with that. I mean, there's so many struggles and stresses in the workplace, and that's compounded by older norms that we had about, as you mentioned, just their present, you know, and having to stay late and, you know, promotions being, you know, um, based on how late and your hours, right? Mm -hmm. And for women, of course, that was a major issue for parents, for, for moms, just a major issue. You know, it's so amazing once you have a child in childcare, childcare expenses are, are just as high. It's like a mortgage. And of course, once you start going over the clock, it's overtime in terms of the cost. So you have to be there right on time to pick your child up. And so there's that constant tension of, you know, I have to run, I have to pick up the child, but I know my employer would prefer me to be at my desk and working until seven, eight at night, even though I'm right. past the point and for, and no, for no reason, because I'm past the point of saturation, <laughs> it's d diminishing returns by then. <laughs> exactly. And I share this with employers that like burnout and success are not positively correlated. People who are exhausted and people who overwork do not come up with innovative ideas. They will not solve the future problems for your business. They will not help you win in the marketplace, right? They're there. They might be physically sitting in their chair or sitting at their computer at home, wherever they're working is irrelevant. They may be checked out. Like people require breaks. They require varied environments. They require caring for their physical and emotional health to be able to deliver effectively at work. Like it doesn't serve anyone including the employer, for people to work in ways that are unsustainable. Yes, absolutely. And so, Leslie, I'm wondering about how you would advise moms who are listening in and are wondering how to navigate going back. Perhaps they're thinking of even quitting. <laughs> Some of them mm -hmm. are thinking there's no way I'm giving up this lifestyle that I have right now, which makes me feel. And, you know, I use this term a lot on social media, more holistically wealthy because I can take a walk in nature at, at lunchtime. I can take a walk in nature, even with the kids when they're on a break and a quick 15 minute break around the block. I don't have that commute. I can multitask 
And I feel richer in my lived experience. You know, how do we say to these people, go back and adopt those norms that you once had that were killing you, that were backbreaking? I'm just wondering what the advice for moms would be in terms of negotiating with their employers. Absolutely. Well, I think there's some good news here is that savvy employers who have been paying attention to the research and to the numbers understand that a large percentage of the workforce want to change jobs, quit jobs, reinvent, you know, and I've seen it in my study throughout, Mm -hmm. right? It's been an ongoing theme that, you know, people want, (laughs) I tell people that people want to blow up their lives. They want to quit their jobs. (laughs) They want to quit their cities. Sometimes they want to quit their spouses, right? (laughs) They want to like dismantle and obliterate everything that hasn't been working for them. Right. As a result of the pandemic and the pressure that it's caused and the reflection that it's caused. But what I tell moms is, first of all, you're probably in a stronger negotiating position now than you would have been previously. Mm -hmm. And there's two approaches. If you feel like you have psychological safety and a trusting relationship with your manager or with your leadership team, then ask for what you want. If you do not want to return to the office full-time, guess what? No one does. Uh, At least in my study, no one does. (laughs) So the numbers support you, right? So other people will have those conversations. So ask for what you want and outline kind of terms where you propose solutions. And I had interviewed another woman who's fantastic productivity coach, Alexis Hasselberger. She said, frame things as an experiment because who wants to say no to an experiment? So you can always say, hey, let's try this for 90 days or let's pilot this this year and see how it works and then reevaluate. So Putting things out there as an experiment, I think, is a really powerful strategy. I also encourage mothers that, you know, there's strength in numbers. So if you don't have the psychological safety with your reporting manager or with your leadership team, then so many organizations now have created employee resource groups, sometimes called business resource groups, where you have access to other parents or other mothers or other women in leadership or to other black or brown people, people of color, you know, whatever groups you identify with and affiliate with, organizations are starting to foster these groups to support each other in the workplace. So talk to other people. And if you don't have a formal employee resource group, like if you're in a smaller organization, talk to other parents and other mothers and ask them, have you talked to your manager about flexibility? How are you handling this? Can we collectively ask for this? So there is strength in numbers. And I encourage people not to have that conversation alone if they don't feel like they have the psychological safety or if their job would be at risk if they had that conversation one-on-one. I also, something I've seen done really well in my career, and I wish I could say I was the one who did it, but I, I wasn't. I was never great about setting boundaries in the workplace, but I knew some people who were brilliant at it. They'd say, oh, wow, you know, this new project sounds amazing. This is exactly what we should be doing. But last week you asked me to do that other project. And that other project is also really, at least you told me it was really important. But if I start this project, it's going to take resources from that other project. Which project do you want me to focus on first? Or do you want to add resources to help with this new project? because this is what it would cost to add resources to help with this new project. So putting the constraints around your workload in terms of business outcomes, business resources, and asking for help in the term in in the form of resources when you're being asked to take on more, I think is another wonderful strategy that leaders and managers understand. And it often is viewed, right, as a trait that is associated with leadership. Unfortunately, not all mothers are met with the same positive reception in the workplace. There's a lot of history of bias. There's a lot of history of women not kind of receiving the same opportunities for leadership and for growth that men have had. So that baggage is real. I think if people do not feel like they're 
workplace is set up for success and they do not feel that after advocating for themselves, either individually or within a group of other parents or mothers, that they're able to have the changes that they want, then this is a time where a lot of people are transitioning and you have permission to explore a workplace or explore a career path that works with your life. And it may not happen overnight if you want to make a significant change, but start to plot your escape. I will say that for myself personally, I was in a role, I was working for a manager who, brilliant person, brilliant leader, but not someone who believed in flexibility. He felt that FaceTime meant you were committed. And he even told me that leaders are the people who are the first in the office and the last to leave. He told me that even though at the time my children were quite young and I was somewhat disqualified from being able to do that as a result. So I you know, had a meeting where I realized that this wasn't going to be the leader who was going to support me. And I wrote my resignation letter that night. Now, it took me several months to find a new job and to upgrade my situation, but I set the intention. I wrote my resignation letter. I didn't get to send it right away, but it was written. It empowered me. It gave me energy to go through the process of maintaining a very busy executive job where I had a lot of responsibilities and also managing life with two young kids and looking for a new job. So I did that because I could start to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, no. And that's interesting because it leads into my my next question. And we spoke about the gig economy and how attractive that is in terms of the flexibility it offers. The passion economy now is worth billions. I think it was, what, $38 billion in 2018. And more and more people are starting to explore that. You know how you mentioned in terms of being meaningful and exploring your passions. And so you mentioned your personal experience with transitioning out of the corporate world. And I wanted to ask you, for those people who feel like blowing up on a career front, any advice and tips based on your experience for launching out on your own, transitioning out of the corporate world? Yes. No, I'm happy to do that. And I'm laughing a little bit because when I started Mom's Hierarchy of Needs, right, which is now over five years ago, it was a passion project. I did not do it to be a revenue generating business, but I did have this kind of long-term goal to turn it into a revenue generating business. But I thought of it as a third income at the time, right? As a side income, I did not envision that it would be my full-time job. So I had this thoughtful plan. And right before the pandemic, I was laid off from my full-time corporate position. And it, so it blew up my plan. And then March of 2020 hit, and there was this global recession brought on by the pandemic. So all of my careful planning became meaningless in the face of that. So I had to get kind of crafty <laughs> and I decided, well, I guess I'm the CEO of Mom's Hierarchy of Needs now. <laughs> let's, let's figure out how to make Mom's Hierarchy of Needs produce revenue. So I kind of had to do that in a pandemic and during a crisis when it, when it was not my plan. But I will say that ideally planning ahead, knowing what your financial needs are, knowing what your security needs are, I think the gig economy is an extraordinary outlet and path for a lot of people. But unfortunately, still, at least here in the US, where we have less social safety nets, if people move in favor of contract work, freelance work, independent work, they might be giving up access to a retirement plan or retirement fund. They might be giving up access to their health insurance Right. So we we still have a culture where health insurance is very tightly tied. Yes. Or at least at least affordable health insurance is very tightly tied to your work. So I think that constrains it can constrain people. So I encourage people to just be really thoughtful mm -hmm. about all of their financial needs and then develop a plan that kind of meets your financial needs. And even if you end up having to change the plan as I did, knowing kind of what your strengths are, knowing what kind of work is meaningful to you, knowing what kind of environments you thrive in. And if you want to promote yourself to the C-suite, 
by becoming an entrepreneur, understanding how much time you need to allocate for that as you plan for it, um, and having at least a, a rough sense of what the revenue trajectory would look like and how long you might need to invest before your business produces enough revenue to support you in the way that you want to be supported. So I think those are the types of considerations. That's such good advice because I've often looked, you know, at our American friends and I've always been so impressed at the speed at which companies there and entrepreneurs there are able to scale. Like the speed is far greater than, you know, in Canada where Yes, we have more social safety net. And yes, we do have the free healthcare, and it's not tied to your job and your goods, you know, social safety nets in place. But I find that the speed at which entrepreneurs here are able to scale is not even half the rate. How they can plan to incorporate those in, in for instance, in projections. Like, I don't know what healthcare costs there in terms of a private plan, let's say, just for example, and, you know, what they would have to put away in a, in a 401k. But I would love to get a sense because I know it's so lucrative there, um, you know, doing contracts, especially B2B contracts. If we go back to earlier episodes in this podcast, women who left their jobs or who were on unemployment and just scaled to like $1 million in 10 months. Like, I know that's not typical. But I've been seeing so many of those cases. And so I'm just wondering from your perspective, you know, even if you're not able to scale that fast or that quickly in terms of the magnitude of the revenue, how you take into consideration your needs in terms of healthcare costs and pension, because I get that that would be a huge chunk, especially in the United States. Absolutely. Well, you know, as you mentioned, it's highly individual and I've seen people approach this in different ways. So, and I've actually had conversations like this with other founders who are trying to weigh some of these decisions and where they should make changes now versus where they should wait. Some people will gradually taper off of full-time work, but do so gradually. So I've seen um, both in my research and among people that I've met where someone might have a very good relationship with their employer. And then have a conversation that, hey, I'd like to adjust to a four-day week. I have this business and I'm planning to invest time in it. Or I would like to adjust to a three-day week or half time. And they have kind of a either some tenure with that organization or they have some real expertise in the nature of the work that they do that they can gradually decrease their salaried time but still in a way that maintains their health insurance in a way that maybe maintains their 401k or their retirement investments and increase as the amount of revenue that comes in from their business increases. So that's one model that I've seen work for people. If someone is partnered and their partner is in the more stable job and they choose to go into the more high risk area, that's another model, right? Where within a couple. And I've seen it on both sides. I've seen it where, you know, it can be either member of the couple who decides, you know what, I am a small company person. So I want to be in the riskier, more fast growth industries and organizations that may or may not have the same compensation and benefits. But the other person is the anchor salary and the anchor for benefits for the family, right? So that's also a model that I've seen work with people. And yeah. then I think with founders, there's some kind of interesting collective groups, industry associations that are making it a little bit easier. We still have, even though it, it was severely, um, I won't use the word decimated, but I'll say adjusted uh, as a result of the political leadership change here in the U.S., we do still have a national health plan that is available. And in some cases that works well for people. I also live in a state. So in Massachusetts, Massachusetts has a set of health insurance companies that offer individual access to health plans. They tend to be very, very expensive, but you can access health insurance that way, or maybe through an industry association. If you're an entrepreneur, you can have access to a plan that's affordable for you and your family. 
So I think these are all different levers that I've seen people pull successfully as they've navigated their escape (laughs) from traditional work or whether or not leaving traditional work makes sense for them and meets all their needs. Yeah, no, that makes sense for sure, Leslie. And those were some amazing tips. And I think this segues nicely into the next question because I think definitely has to work for you and your family. And in terms of your risk appetite, your personal financial identity has to weigh in very strongly on this decision. And when I wrote Holistic Wealth, that was one of the things that I recognized as a mom and as a newly single mom, you know, after my husband died, that this personal financial identity concept was so important and not necessarily following what others are doing because it's kind of like the in thing to do or everybody's doing it, but really being true and authentic to ourselves and our needs and the needs of our family. So so Leslie, I know you took the quiz and I'm eager to hear your results and any insights you can share because so many female entrepreneurs have come on the program and they've shared some wonderful insights on exactly what we're talking about too, on how their financial identity weighed in on how they were able to transition out of the workplace and into their own businesses and how they used and harnessed, you know, its strengths in in terms of maximizing the opportunities and, and making sure that they weren't over leveraged or making sure that things could actually work for their lifestyle and for their family needs. And so it would be great for you to share Any insights you have on that and your results, that would be amazing. Sure, I'm happy to. So I'm a financial minimalist, according to your quiz, which, you know, which didn't surprise me when when I kind of read the explanation. It has been helpful to me personally that the way I define at least personal success has more to do with what I can experience and what opportunities are available to me and what opportunities I can make available to my children. Yeah. Those are the ways I look at success versus the amount of things that I own. Yeah. Or even the having the most top of the line thing, for example, right? Like those are not for me personally, that's not how I measure success. So it it allows me some freedom and flexibility, right? In how I think about spending and also enables me. I've always been somebody who is very inclined towards saving in part because of that and my spending style, I guess, for my personal financial style. I also went through some difficult years growing up where we had some financial instability. So I think anyone who has gone through that type of experience is likely to be affected in some way as an adult. So for me, that effect, it has been being a saver (laughs) and being somebody who is, you know, very, very aware of and has always believed in the power of having a plan B in the form of savings. So I think those types of observations about myself have helped me as an entrepreneur And I will say, though, that as an entrepreneur, knowing how I became a full-time entrepreneur, right, I shared it was by accident, that I don't know, I wouldn't have taken this leap to be fully an entrepreneur all at once. The kind of the circumstances, the universe, you know, however you define, you know, having kind of things work in a certain way in your life. Like for me, I was pushed into full-time entrepreneurship. Yeah, really grateful for it because it's allowing me to do work that I find meaningful, that I love. And it has forced me out of my comfort zone and out of my financial comfort zone in a way that I think allows me to stretch myself as a leader in ways that I wouldn't have chosen to stretch myself, to be honest. So I think it's been good for me, even though it was not my plan. Yeah, no, and that's amazing. And as you're talking, like, I feel like so much of what you're saying resonates with me because, you know, in the earlier part of your answer to the question, how, you know, you spoke about success and how you define success. And I talk about that a lot in Holistic Wealth, defining success on your own terms, because I had to come to terms with that too. After my husband died, I was forced, not really literally forced, but I had to take a step back. 
from climbing the corporate ladder. And I had to really reevaluate my priorities based on my newfound status as a young widow and with two kids, a single mom, you know, going through that grief, which was terrifying. And so what I realized after that soul searching that I mentioned in the book was redefining wealth was critical for me. I was somebody like you. I valued experiences, valued time with the kids. My husband was now gone. I needed to be there for them. And I wanted to be there for them in a way that was all encompassing. Like I I just didn't want to be there as like a part-time mom. And so it's so funny that when we talk about moms in the workplace and, you know, how we grapple with these different issues and even in business too, and trying to grow a business, one of the things that I usually advocate is to really define wealth and success. So not just success, but wealth. And what does wealth mean for you? And that's, you know, how we came up with the concept of holistic wealth, because it was my experience as a mom that led me to realize that, you know what, like we can't go on, you know, the way we're going on and tying our self-worth to our net worth and our job titles and all of these things that can crumble overnight. And so it's something that I'm passionate about and why I'm so very happy to have you on the podcast with this discussion now. And as we're talking about even the financial aspect of it and how we define success and how we define wealth. I think it can provide a lot of relief for moms out there who have grappled, you know, because it's so funny with different cultures, right? Like we grew up in the culture, Leslie, where, you know, and I said this on a previous podcast episode, tell me your title and I'll tell you who you are. Tell me, you know, and, and so it's funny that we, even in the black community as women, we grapple with that. We want, yes, we want the career success, But our values are contradicting that. And so it's this contradiction Mm -hmm. all the time that we're just like, wait a minute. Yes, I want that. But I want this time and I want the flexibility. And I want it even after COVID now to be even more extreme where I'm owning my time even more fully. And so I think, yeah, and I think so many of us are at that point where we're, you know, as you mentioned, blowing up that paradigm of thinking that this is how, you know, it's supposed to be and this is how life is supposed to unfold. But we're coming to the end of the interview. And so I want to give you a chance to share any last minute words of wisdom because you've been so good in terms of articulating, you know, exactly how women are feeling. (laughs) So any last words of wisdom from you, Leslie, would be appreciated. Well, you know, there's so much in what you just said that made me think, Part of the equation for what type of circumstance works for you professionally, whether you decide to be in a corporate setting, whether you decide to be an entrepreneur, whether you decide to take some time at home, right? Because that, as you had described, right, there are so many circumstances where people need to pause or are forced to pause professionally to care for their children or to care for themselves. And self-care is a piece of this. You need to have, I think, a life where the way it is set up, the schedule that you keep, the level of intensity associated with the demands on your time matches your personality, matches your style as a parent, and also allows you space to care for yourself. So I think that's what's been left out of the professional equation for a long time, which is why so many women in particular, but caregivers and parents are resisting, you know, at a very visceral level, this idea that things should return to the old normal because there wasn't space for self-care in that. And you even had people who had incredible financial resources, incredible financial privilege, who were in poor physical health or who did not have strong relationships with their partners, with their children, within their family, you know, who were lacking for the time to care for their own well-being at the expense of being able to achieve professional uh, success in the way it has always been defined traditionally, right, which is in terms of income. So I think this is good for us as a culture to pause 
and reflect on what does success really mean and what is a life well lived. And it's more than the money you make or the position you hold. Those things afford a certain lifestyle, but the lifestyle also has to allow you, right, to breathe, to care for yourself, to care for your kids, to have daily activities that matter to you and that fuel you and that feed you. So I encourage people to consider that as they plan for their next step, whether it's in an office, out of an office, at home, you know, whatever the environment is, make sure that the way your days are structured, the way your weeks are structured, you feel restored and fueled at some point in each day. Yes. Wise words to leave us with Leslie. Thank you so much. And can you tell our audience where to reach you on social media and your website? Absolutely. Um, Mom's Hierarchy of Needs is the website. I'm on all the social places, either Mom's Hierarchy of Needs or Mom's Hierarchy on Instagram, Mom's underscore hierarchy underscore of underscore needs. So I would love for people to visit me in any of those places. Okay, absolutely. And thank you so much again, Leslie. I enjoyed this so much. It was amazing having you here. Thank you. Likewise, I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us this week on Holistic Wealth with Keisha Blair. Make sure to visit our website, KeishaBlair.com, where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or via RSS, so you will never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Are you a member of the Institute on Holistic Wealth? If not, what are you waiting for? Go to Institute on Holistic Wealth slash memberships to choose your membership plan and join. As a member, you get so many perks, free worksheets, advice, coaching, and a member's workshop to design an intentionally designed life. You need to figure out your life purpose? Take the Build Your Life Purpose Portfolio online self-paced course. You're struggling with all your money decisions? Take the free financial identities quiz and then take the course. You recently had a breakup, job loss, or experienced the death of a loved one? Take the holistic healing course. You need an overall plan to achieve holistic wealth? We will help you figure out your holistic wealth blueprint. And of course, if you want to start making money by helping others achieve holistic wealth, become a certified holistic wealth consultant. Regardless of what career you've got, the Institute will show you how to increase your income and walk in your purpose. The sooner you join, the sooner you start to achieve a more holistically wealthy lifestyle. And you're going to want to stay for a very long time. So go to Institute on Holistic Wealth slash memberships to join. If you haven't read the book yet, pick up a copy of the award-winning, best-selling Holistic Wealth 32 Life Lessons to Help you find purpose, prosperity, and happiness. 